Our response to a crisis reveals what we really believe about God. When you tell God your problems, don't tell Him how to solve them. He is using those problems to produce eternal benefits. Welcome to the Mana Bible Lessons Podcast. Mana is a Bible study life group that meets at Valley Baptist Church in Bakersfield, California, every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. However, if you're listening from another part of the world, then we welcome you and we invite you to stay tuned after the lesson to hear how you can submit your prayer request to be on our prayer sheet. Thank you for joining us. And now here's Brad Hannock. So kind, open your Bibles to 2 Kings chapter 5, 2 Kings chapter 5. As most of you know, we've been a couple of months in the study of 1 and 2 Kings. Lord willing, we'll be here pretty close to the end of the year, at least till December. These two books are a record of the kings of Israel and Judah, with the exception, of course, of Saul and David, which were largely recorded in the books of 1 and 2 Samuel. Uh, today, we're studying a well-known passage that most of you probably know at least a little bit about, the healing of Naaman the leper uh, by Elisha. So let's pick up the narrative in 2 Kings 5, verse 1. Now Naaman, captain of the army of the king of Aram, was a great man with his master and highly respected, because by him the Lord had given victory to Aram. The man was also a valiant warrior, but he was a leper. Now the Arameans had gone out in bands and taken captive a little girl from the land of Israel, and she waited on Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, I wish that my master were with the prophet who is in Samaria. Then he would cure him of his leprosy. Naaman went in and told his master, saying, Thus and thus spoke the girl who is from the land of Israel. Then the king of Aram said, Go now, and I will send a letter to the king of Israel. He departed and took with him 10 talents of silver, 6,000 shekels of gold, and 10 changes of clothes. Here's the principle. No one, regardless of status, is immune from pain and suffering in this life. Just in case you are wondering that it's just you, it's not just you. No one, regardless of status, is immune from pain and suffering in this life. Aram in Damascus, Damascus is the capital, city of Aram, that was the name of the, happened to be the regime in power at that point. Today we would know this as modern day Syria. Damascus has been around for 8,000 plus years, one of the oldest cities in the world. It is north and east of the northern ten tribes, which is Israel. Israel, Samaria, you'll notice Samaria in the middle of Israel, it's the capital. And then south is the southern two tribes, the land of Judah. Uh, that's the southern two tribes. So this kind of give you a general picture of what we're talking about. So Aram and Israel have been perennial enemies, and there's been occasional periods of peace. And the, the Aramic king, king of Syria at this point in time, was named Ben-Hadad. That was a title, not a proper name. It's like calling somebody Pharaoh. That's not the proper name. That's the title uh, that they have at that point in time. The time frame right now is about 850 B.C., uh, before Christ. And the word Naaman means pleasant. So this guy's name means pleasant, and apparently he was a pretty pleasant guy. He was a military leader of the Aramean army, and he was a very popular leader. So he was kind of like Dwight Eisenhower. He was a, a skilled general, respected by the army, popular with the people. The king of Aram thought he was the cat's meow. 
But I want you to notice this phrase. He was highly respected because what? By him who the Lord had given victory to Aram. So God is making it very clear here that the outcome of human conflicts is not based on the genius of the general. It's based on his will. Aramian victories did not happen because Naaman was a superior general, even though he might have been a very good general. I'm sure Naaman thought that, you know, we're victorious because I'm such a stud. I am the greatest general that ever was, and therefore we're winning all these victories. The reality is, Yahweh, the God of Israel, used Naaman to give Aram, who was the national enemy of Israel, victory over his own people, Israel, because Israel was disobeying God. Israel was worshiping idols. Israel was deep into Baal worship and all the sexual sins associated with that. So the victory of Syria or Aram over Israel had nothing to do with their genius. It had to do that God was using an enemy of his own people to punish his own people and discipline them so that they would stop sinning. Right? So one of God's purposes was facilitated by Naaman's military prowess. Another of God's purposes was facilitated by his physical weakness. He was a leper. Now, leprosy, today we call it Hansen's disease, was the scourge of ancient times. It often began as just a little rash or a little discoloration of the skin, but it was progressive. And it progressively it often grew into skin tumors. And one of the curses of, of leprosy is that it deadens your nerve endings. So you no longer can feel pain. You can no longer feel pleasure either. So you can cut, you can bruise, you can abrade your skin, your muscles, and you feel nothing. Today, probably the closest thing we would have that is folks who are extremely diabetic and they have very, a lot of neuropathy in their feet. Generally speaking, when you talk to them, they don't walk barefoot a lot because when you walk barefoot and you smack your feet into something, you can leave a trail of blood and you don't even feel it, right? So it's a very, very significant uh, problem because that if you can't feel the pain, you can't treat the injury, and then it leads to gangrene and infection. And, of course, uh, you can lose toes, fingers, noses, ears, pretty common. So it was very disfiguring disease. Ultimately, in that day, it was very fatal. Now, Israel, as you know, had a very strict protocol for dealing with leprosy. When you even had a little bit of a discoloration, you went to the priest and they diagnosed it immediately. And if you were, in fact, leprous, you were quarantined immediately. Hardcore quarantined outside the city gates. And they kept treating you or, or looking at that and making sure that it was not spreading. They had a test if you could come back into the community. Naaman's leprosy might have been in the early stages because he maintained his position at court, he maintained his position as the Israeli army, and foreign nations were far more casual about disease. God's people, Israel, were pretty Johnny-on-the-spot due to God's commands in, in Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers. It's an interesting question, somewhat paradoxical. Why did Naaman have leprosy? We ask that. Why do I have this disease? Why do I have this problem? Why do I have this health condition, etc.? So you say, well, was it because he was proud and arrogant? Maybe it's because he led raiding parties into Israel, plundered, captured, killed people. In other words, 
Was Naaman's leprosy a direct result of personal sin in Naaman's life? And there are those in our culture, even in the Christian community, that believe that if anything bad happens to you, it is a direct result of personal sin in your life. And therefore, if you only repent, then God will bless you with health and wealth and longevity, blah, 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 blah. You know how I feel about that. You know what God's Word says about that. If that were the case, then God's greatest servant should never have suffered. And they all did. And guess what? They all died. What does that tell you? That's part of the human condition living in a broken planet. And we often ask God, Lord, why am I suffering or struggling with this problem, whatever the problem happens to be? John 9, absolutely fascinating passage, records the story of Jesus and his disciples coming upon a man who was born blind. Right? And the disciples asked him in John 9 too, they asked him, Rabbi, teacher, who sinned? this man or his parents, that he would be born blind. So they had that assumption. If you're born blind, your parents must have sinned because you weren't around to sin, right? You were born blind. But all such things as personal health issues were a direct result of personal sin. That was the belief system in the Jewish culture in the first century. Verse 3, what did Jesus say? Jesus said, it was neither that this man sinned nor his parents but it was so that the works of God might be displayed in him. So God sovereignly allowed Naaman to contract leprosy so that the grace of God, the power of God, the healing of God would be displayed in him, and Naaman would come to faith in Yahweh, right? God often uses problems to what? Show us our need for him. So whatever suffering we have in our life, you have in your life at this point, it does not necessarily mean that there's personal sin. Now, there might be personal sin in your life, but there may not be personal sin in your life either. Don't jump off that cliff. God may have allowed those problems in your life for obvious for reasons far greater than just personal sin. So it just so happened, anytime the Bible says, and it came to pass, that's a code word that the Holy Spirit's working. It came to pass, blah, blah, blah. Now, what you want to say, anytime you see that word and it came to pass, you want to say, thank God it didn't come to stay. <laughs> right? It came to pass. The stuff, this bad stuff, it comes to pass and it goes away. Right? It's not forever. Your pains and problems, ours are not forever. They're temporary. Right? It came to pass that on one of his raids in Israel, Naaman captured a young girl. And she became the personal servant of his wife. Now, we don't know how old she was. Clear she was familiar with Elisha the prophet. And she was very familiar with the miracles that Elisha did. Now, her parents might have been one of the 7,000 in Israel that had not bowed the knee to Baal that God obviously told Elijah about earlier. Interesting young lady. She cared enough about Naaman to mention to his wife that if Naaman were only with the prophet in Israel, he would heal him of his leprosy. She reminds us of Joseph and Daniel, who sincerely worked for the welfare of who? Their captors. What did Jesus say? Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you, right? 
When God's people seek the welfare of their enemies and pray for and love their enemies, it is irrevocable, powerful testimony to the love of Almighty God because that is not normal on this planet. So Naaman's wife told Naaman what his, her personal servant had said, this little Israeli girl, and he told the king. The king of Aram wrote a letter, sent Naaman to Israel to be cured of his fatal disease. Now, it's pretty common back in Eastern cultures to bring gifts when you visited someone. Lots of gifts, right? Especially when you wanted them to do something for you. And Naaman came loaded, really extravagant gifts. Ten talents of silver. A talent weighed about 75 pounds. So ten talents is 750 pounds of silver. It's a silver. 6,000 shekels of gold is about 150 pounds of gold. This is a serious gift, right? Payment, whatever you want to call it, but it is significant. Ten changes of clothes. It doesn't say they're finished clothes. They might have been bolts of cloth. You know, clothing was handmade in that era. There was no singer sewing machines. We didn't have professional looms. Everything was stitched by hand, right? Remember Fiddler on the Roof? Everything was labor-intensive. Clothing, you had one pair of clothing. One. And you wore it till it wore out, right? Only royalty could afford ten shades of clothing. This was extravagant gifts. He not only came with gifts, he brought a letter. Verse 6. The letter said to the king of Israel, saying, quote, as, and now, as this letter comes to you, behold, I have sent Naaman, my servant, to you, quote, that you may cure him of his leprosy. Verse 7, when the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes and said, Am I God to kill and make alive that this man is sending word to me to cure a man of his leprosy? But consider now and seek how he is, see how he is seeking a quarrel against me. Here's the principle. Our response to a crisis reveals what we really believe about God. Our response to a crisis reveals what we really believe about God. Naaman shows up at the court, the king of Israel, and he's got a note from the king of Aram. This is kind of a diplomatic note saying, we expect you to heal Naaman of his leprosy, right? Now, the king of Israel is named Joram. And this is Ahab's youngest son. Ahab, of course, the wickedest king in Israel. He is absolutely horrified that the king of Israel, or the king of Aram, expected him to heal an incurable disease. The king sees this problem as unsolvable, impossible. And it is. From a human standpoint, there was no cure at that point. King Joram has no faith in God. Elisha, the man of God, lives in Samaria with King Joram. They could have been neighbors, for all we know, right? And Elisha has been doing miracle after miracle after miracle after miracle. So it's not like Joram doesn't know that he's got a prophet in Israel who does miracles. The real problem is that the king of Israel doesn't want a relationship with the God of Israel and doesn't want a relationship with God's prophet. So he interprets this request as a pretext for picking a fight. The king of Aram asked me to do something that's obviously impossible, cure somebody of his leprosy. And when I can't do it, he's going to start a fight over and invade us. Now, the reality is the king of Aram was not looking for a fight. The king of Aram, Ben-Hadad, expected that a prophet as powerful as Elisha 
would be on a first-name basis with the king of Israel. Now think about it. You have a prophet in Bakersfield who can routinely do miracles. Do you think we would know who they are? If they were routinely doing miracles, I mean, Elisha only did 16 of them. The Lord did them through him. So Ben-Hadad, the king of Aram, is not asking Joram to heal Naaman. He assumes that Joram is on a first-name basis with the prophet Elisha, who does miracles. Call Elisha, right? Call him in. However, Joram is not worshiping Yahweh, the God of Israel. He wants nothing to do with the prophet of Yahweh. So he tears his clothes because he really doesn't believe God is who he says he is. And he doesn't believe that because he loves his sin. And if you love your sin, you will change your theology to suit your morality. People always do it. When people change their theology, it's because they've already got immoral behavior in their life and they need to justify it. So anytime someone says, well, I'm no longer in church because of yada, 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 that just smoke. The reason is you have sin in your life which you love and you're not going to give up, so now you've got to justify why you can't hang around with God's people because you feel guilty. Right? I did that for years. Some of you did too. You look guilty just looking at you. <laughs> There's this, is he talking to me? It's not that I talk, it's just the Holy Spirit does. Verse 8. It happened when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, that he sent word to the king saying, quote, Why have you torn your clothes? Now let him come to me, and he shall know that there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman came with his horses and his chariots and stood at the doorway of the house of Elisha. Elisha sent a messenger to him saying, Go and wash in the Jordan seven times, and your flesh will be restored to you, and you will be clean. But Naaman was furious and went away and said, Behold, I thought, he will surely come out to me and stand and call on the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the place and cure the leopard. Are not the Abana and Afar Far, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned away in a rage. Here's the principle. When you tell God your problems, don't tell him how to solve them. He is using those problems to produce eternal benefits. When you tell God your problems, and we're all world-class at that, none of us have any problem telling God our problems, right? Amen? Amen? We know how to do that. Don't tell him how to solve them. We're also really good at that. He's using your problems, my problems, to produce eternal benefits. So Elisha lives in the same city as the king, right? Capital city. He hears that the king has run into an unsolvable problem and torn his clothes. By the way, you tear your clothes in that culture for periods of extreme grief, hopelessness, and just dismay. I don't know what else to do. It's just, it's a hopeless case. It's, it's, a, it's a broken spirit, a broken um, heart response. I don't know what else to do. It's just despair. So he sends a message and he rebukes the king for tearing his clothes. He says, there's no reason for you to be in despair. There's no reason for you to tear your clothes. This is not an unsolvable, impossible problem. There is a God in Israel who is alive and well, and what? Nothing is impossible with Yahweh, the God of Israel, the God of the Bible, 
the same God, the creator God, who is alive and well in the United States, around the world, today in 2022. Send Naaman to me, and he will experience God's healing power. So Naaman comes to Elisha's house, and he's got this entourage, right? He's got a retinue. He's got attendants and horses and chariots and soldiers and pack animals to carry all the good stuff, right? So Elisha sends a messenger out to him. Could have been Gehazi, could have been somebody else. And the messenger says, here's God's prescription for your fatal disease, right? Go to the Jordan, immerse yourself seven times, and you'll be healed. You get that comprehensible? Pretty simple prescription. You know, the handwriting on this prescription is legible, pretty clear what God wants you to do. Go to the Jordan, immerse yourself seven times, and you will be healed. Now, Naaman's a VIP. I mean, he's big and bad, large and in charge, and he expects to be treated like a VIP. He says so. I expected that the prophet's going to come out to me, personal stand before me like a servant, you know, pray to Yahweh, perform this religious mumbo-jumbo, wave his hand, you know, over the disease, and, and I expect to be healed in, you know, a sensational sort of fashion. I just want to see this stuff go away. He expected to be the center of attention, but Elisha knew because God had told him that Naaman's core problem was not leprosy. That wasn't the real problem. The real problem was pride. Naaman wanted to be large and in charge, the center of attention. Leprosy was physically fatal at that time. Pride is fatal for all eternity. It'll kill you forever. It'll separate you from God. God's treatment protocol was designed to humble Naaman's pride first and then heal his leprosy. Spiritual healing first, then physical healing. I don't know why God does what he does. He's sovereign, and we certainly aren't. But I'm persuaded that there are times God does not take away our problems when we want him to because there are spiritual lessons we still have to learn. And we don't understand those spiritual lessons at the time. So we have no clue why God just wouldn't heal us and take this pain away. God, if you love me, you would take this pain away. God says, I'm not done teaching you what I want to teach you. I don't have anything to learn. That's the problem. You don't think there's anything to learn. You're not trusting my assessment, my diagnosis. You're trusting your diagnosis, right? Reminds you of your grandchildren, right? So Naaman was enraged that Elisha would not treat him with the honor and the respect that he deserved. He had a problem with pride. By the way, the Jordan River was a muddy river. It was a stream, and the rivers of Damascus that came off the glaciers up in the Ararat Mountains were cleaner, they were colder. And Naaman thought, look, if getting wet in a river is the key to getting healing, well, I just bathe in a clean one, and one that I know. You know, i got my favorite swimming hole up there. Why would I go to a muddy Jordan River? So he goes away, and he's enraged. And we've done that with God from time to time. When God doesn't give us our way, we pout, right? I'm just not going to talk with you. Yeah, okay. It's like your kid saying, I'm going to hold my breath until I get my way. Go for it, right? <laughs> when you turn blue, you'll start breathing again soon enough, right? Verse 13. Then Naaman's servants came near and spoke to him and said, quote, My father 
Had the prophet told you to do some great thing, would you not have done it? How much more then when he says to you, wash and be clean? So he went down and dipped himself seven times in the Jordan, according to the word of the man of God, and his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. Here's the principle. Submitting to God's directions requires humility, which will save your life. Submitting to God's directions requires humility, which would save your life. Now, Naaman was particularly blessed. He was blessed with someone in his life who would tell him the truth. Tactfully, but would tell him the truth. One of the greatest things we all need in our life is people who will tell us the truth. You got doggy breath, do something about it, right? I mean, we need people who will tell us the truth. And they persuaded him with a very simple question. They said, look, if Elisha had asked you to do a very difficult thing, something that required huge superhuman effort, you would have done it in a heartbeat in order to be healed, right? Then why not do something very simple like just go to the Jordan River and bathe in it? Now, the issue was if Naaman had to perform a difficult action to be healed, who would get the credit? He would. I did this, I performed this, I did this very difficult thing, and I earned my healing. But washing in a muddy foreign river, that, that was beneath his dignity. However, he's got a problem. He really can't go back to Aram as a leper. This disease will spread. Sooner or later, it's going to cost him his position. He's going to have to be quarantined. So Naaman's between his pride, and if I don't get healed, I'm going to die. And between now and then, I'm going to be quarantined, I'm going to lose my position, I'm going to lose a lot of stuff. So he's got to be thinking about this. He doesn't want to lose his career, he doesn't want to lose his life, so am I willing to die in my pride, or am I willing to humble myself and live? You see the paradox? And we know lots of people who are dealing with the same thing. They know the path they're taking is not a good path, but their pride keeps them on a path they know is headed to a dead end, away from God, away from Jesus, separated for all eternity. The solution is humility. That's why we come to Christ. That's how we come to Christ. So he finally humbles himself. He goes to the Jordan River. It's about 30 miles away from Samaria, so it's, you know, he, can walk, he can get over there on horseback very reasonably quickly. Once he got to the river, what did he do? He followed his instructions exactly. He didn't say immerse yourself once or six times or 12 times. He said immerse yourself seven times. Exactly, seven times. That's the perfect number. Represents God. And he did exactly what he was told. And his leprosy was completely cured just as promised. Which ought to tell us that when God tells us to do something, we should not negotiate. Have you found that negotiating with the Lord it doesn't work? Because he he's, he's doesn't offer suggestions. He gives commands. Because he's God. And we're not. Oh, darn. That's a really good thing. It's a good thing you and I don't have that kind of power. We would do really foolish things with it. Interesting that Naaman's immersion in the Jordan River reminds us of what? Baptism. Buried with him in baptism, raised to walk in newness of life. It's a picture of new life. Verse 15. When he returned to the man of God with all his company, 
and came and stood before him, he said, Behold now, I know that there is no God in all the earth, but in Israel. So please take a present from your servant now. But he, Elisha said, As the Lord lives before him who I stand, I will take nothing. And Naaman urged him to take it, but Elisha refused. Naaman said, If not, please let your servant at least be given two mule loads of earth, for your servant will no longer offer burnt offerings, nor will he sacrifice to other gods, but to the Lord. In this matter, may the Lord pardon your servant when my master goes into the house of Rimmon to worship there, and he leans on my hand, and I bow myself in the house of Rimmon. When I bow myself in the house of Rimmon, the Lord pardon your servant in this matter. Elisha said to him, go in peace. So he departed from him some distance. Here's the principle. Genuine conversion means worshiping the God of the Bible alone and no one else. Genuine conversion means worshiping the God of the Bible and no one else. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. After his healing, Naaman returns. He rides the 30 miles back to Elisha's residence and this time, he gets off his high horse, he dismounts from his chariots, and he stands before Elisha in a position of humility. And then he makes one of the most dramatic statements of faith recorded in the Old Testament. He, he looks at the empirical evidence of his healing, and he says, this fatal disease, which is non-curable, he says, quote, I know that there is no God in all the earth but in Israel. He is saying the God of Israel, in fact, is the only creator the owner and ruler of all the universe, right? It's just exclusive. He's repudiating all of the gods as being false gods. Nebuchadnezzar made the same statement of faith when he was turned into, thought, imagined himself to be an animal as judgment for his pride. He was in the royal park for seven years, and when he came to his senses, he said, there is only one God, the God of Israel, Yahweh, right? Naaman wants to express his gratitude to Elisha by giving him these lavish presents, but Elisha refuses to accept any gift. He does that because God's grace is not for sale. You cannot buy it. You cannot work for it. It is a gift. God's grace is based on God's character, not human payment. And Naaman thought that he could pay for God's grace. If you can pay for God's grace, God owes you. God doesn't owe anybody anything, anywhere, anytime. He's God. He will not be indebted. He does what he does because he is Lord, and he gives us grace because he's a God of love. So then, and then asked for two mules load of Israelite earth. In other words, give me some dirt from Israel I can take back to Aram. He understood, interesting thought, that God had promised Israel, I'm going to bless you through Abraham so you can be a blessing, and I'm going to give you the land, the land of Canaan. That was the promised land, and I'm going to work through you and this land to accomplish my purposes on planet Earth. So Israel, Naaman wants to take a little piece of Israel back to Aram, and he says, he tells you why. He says, I'm going to erect an altar on top of these two mule loads of earth, and I'm only going to sacrifice to the God of Israel. I understand that there is only one God, monotheism. 
and I'm only going to worship and sacrifice to that one God. I'm repudiating all other gods as foreign gods. He's committing himself to worship Yahweh alone. But he's got a problem. He's not only the commander of the army, he's also the king's personal bodyguard. Now, as such, he accompanies the king wherever he goes, including the time when the king enters into the house of Rimmon, that's the false god of Syria, to worship. And we're not sure whether the king literally leaned on Naaman's arm when he bowed down before his idol, Rimmon, and Naaman would be forced to bow as well. We don't know whether the king was old and infirm and leaned on his arm or whether this is a figure of speech. You know, the king is very dependent on me and it's part of my job description to go into the house of Rimmon with him. Uh, but he understood that the worship of God was exclusive and you could not worship other gods and worship Yahweh. Now, that's marvelous insight. We have an enormous number of people in our culture who call themselves Christians who actually are polytheists. They worship a boatload of stuff besides God. You know, I, I talk to Christians all the time and they say, we talk about the troubles in the world, et cetera, et cetera, and they say, well, God is sovereign. I say, he is. But that doesn't mean he's going to let you keep your way of life. What do you tell your Christian brothers and sisters in Africa or Asia who undergo persecution? God is sovereign as long as life is good and comfortable. What if God is sovereign and he allows you to suffer for his name's sake? Is he still sovereign? We say that very easily as long as the electricity works, the hot water's on, and we have no raging migraines, right? It's a different ball game when we're in the middle of troubles and trials and they won't go away and we go, God is sovereign. Yes, and he allows me to struggle. Yes, and he loves me. Yes. Yes, he does love me. The Bible says he loves me. So you either walk by sight or you walk by God's word. What does God's word say? So Naaman asks Elisha's God, Yahweh, to pardon him and bow him before Rimmon. He says, I'm, I'm, I'm bowing in body, but not in heart. And actually, Elisha doesn't argue with him. This is, he's a brand new baby Christian. I mean, he's, he's basically uh, brand new in the faith, and he basically says, go in peace. So, as a result of his healing, Naaman has become a worshiper and a follower of Yahweh. He basically said that, clearly. His life has been transformed, not only physically, but also spiritually. As a matter of fact, the only thing he lost was his arrogance, which was essential to his losing his leprosy. If he hadn't humbled himself of his pride, he would not have been cured of his leprosy. That is interesting application for us. Now, in contrast, verse 20, but Gehazi, the servant of Elisha, the man of God, thought, quote, Behold, my master has spared this Naaman the Aramean by not receiving from his hands what he brought. As the Lord lives, I will run after him and take something from him. So Gehazi pursued Naaman. When Naaman saw one running after him, he came down from his chair to meet him and says, Is all well? Gehazi said, All is well. My master has sent me, saying, Behold, just now, two young men of the sons of the prophets have come to me from the hill country of Ephraim. Please give them a talent of silver and two changes of clothes. And Naaman said, Be pleased to take two talents. And he urged him and bound two talents of silver in two bags with two changes of clothes and gave them to two of his servants, and they carried them before him. 
when he came to the hill, he took them from their hand and deposited them in the house, and he sent the men away, and they departed. But Gehazi went in and stood before his master. And Elisha said to him, Where have you been, Gehazi? He said, Your servant went nowhere. Then he said, Did not my heart go with you when the man turned from his chariot to meet you? Is it a time to receive money and to receive clothes and olive trees and vineyards and sheep and oxen and the male and female servants? Therefore, the judgment, the leprosy of Naaman shall cling to you and your descendants forever. So went out from his presence a leper as white as snow. Here's the principle. God severely judges people who hinder others from following him. God severely judges people who hinder from following him. Jesus was talking about causing a baby Christian to stumble in their faith by your behavior, and he said what? Better a millstone, 75-pound rock, they used to grind grain, be hung around your neck, and you be tossed overboard in the depths of the sea. Then you cause a baby Christian to stumble. That's what he was doing. Now, Gehazi's God was not Yahweh. It was greed. He loved the stuff, right? Furthermore, he hated the Arameans because they were enemies of Israel. And he refused to give them grace like God wanted to. Who's that remind you of? The prophet who got swallowed by the fish named Jonah, right? He wanted God to nuke Nineveh because he hated their guts and God wanted to give them grace. God told him to go proclaim judgment with the intention that they would repent. And Jonah said, I don't want them to repent. I want you to nuke them. I hate these people. So he didn't represent God accurately. Neither did Gehazi. You can hear Gehazi talking to himself. He's justifying his evil behavior. He's justifying his greed. He says, look, this guy bought gifts. He was prepared to pay for healing. And he got healed. He should pay. It's only right. Right? I mean, even more. This Naaman guy has been leading raiding parties into Israel for years. He's been killing people, plundering, capturing the Israelites, etc. It's only right that he should pay for his past wicked behavior. And he even swears by the Lord. He says, as the Lord lives. Now that is the ultimate oath in Israel. As the Lord lives means I am going to do this as God lives, right? I'm going to run after I'm going to take something from him. Who does this guy remind you of? He reminds us of Judas. Judas spent how many years with Jesus? Three years. He routinely stole money from the common treasury. All the 12 disciples would put money in the common treasury. Judas would routinely pilfer and steal from that. And he ultimately betrayed the Lord for money. How much? 30 pieces of silver. That was no big deal. That was a common price for a common slave. And he re rejected and betrayed the Lord of glory, for 30 pieces of silver. Now, Gehazi has spent years with Elisha. He's seen God work through Elisha to work multiple miracles, and yet he values the loot, the money, the material stuff, more than God or Elisha. Sad to say, not much of Elisha's character has rubbed off on Gehazi. Right? And you and I have relatives like this guy, right? 
You've been loving on them, praying for 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 them until you're tired of saying their name to the Lord and not much is rubbing off and you are going to continue to pray for them. Aren't you? Yes, you are. Because we talked about last week, since nothing is impossible with God, never stop praying. Right? So God is a giving God. God desires to bless all the peoples of the earth, not just one nation. What did God say to Abraham? Abraham, I'm going to bless you in order that through you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. So you and I are blessed, not to hoard it, but to share it so that we will be a blessing. That's why we have come to faith in Christ, so that we can be part of making disciples. But Gehazi is not interested in giving to the Gentiles or blessing the Gentiles. He's interested in taking from the Gentiles the complete opposite of what God wanted to do. So he runs after Naaman's chariots. They're headed back to Syria. Naaman sees somebody coming. He stops the chariots. He says, is everything okay? Actually, it's, he stops the chariots because he got healed, and he's feeling pretty grateful at this point in time. And as soon as Gehazi opens his mouth and his lips start moving, he starts lying. You know, we know people like that. He lies about Elisha. He lies about God. First lie, my master has sent me. No, he came on his own. Second lie, he tells Naaman that just now two sons of the prophet have visited Elisha. Now, prophets in that era, like pastors in this era, were usually poor. So requesting material support wouldn't have been unusual. It would have been you know, common. So he has to justify the request for money so he uses a charitable request to cover his greed. Does this sound familiar? You've heard this before, right? Pretty common, human nature and all. Third line, Gehazi says that Elisha is asking Naaman for one talent of silver and two changes of clothing for these poor seminary students, right? They're sons of the prophets. They're in training. Now, Naaman is so grateful for his healing, he doubles the offer. He says, take two talents, right? So take 150 pounds of silver. What's utterly interesting, two talents of silver was the exact price that 40 years earlier, Ahab's son Omri had bought the entire mound of Samaria for. 150 pounds of silver bought the mound. This was a lot of dough. They bought the location to build the capital city of Israel for 150 pounds of silver, and Gehazi's getting 150 pounds of silver for two poor, broke seminary students. Whoa. It was so heavy, it took two servants to carry the stuff back up the hill. Samaria was an elevated mountain, an elevated mound. How's that? It's not terribly high, but at the same time, it was elevated. It was a super place to have a capital city because it was very, very defensible. Omri bought it and built a city in Samaria about 875, so maybe 25, 30 years earlier. By the way, the name Samaria means watch mountain or watch tower because it was elevated. You could see your enemies. So Gehazi takes the loot from Naaman's servants before they're close enough to the hill for Elisha to see what he's up to. After he stashes the loot, he hurries back into Elisha's presence. Clearly, Gehazi's been gone for some time. And so Elisha asks, where has he been? Do you think Elisha doesn't know? Reminds you when you were a child, when your parents asked you a question, and you really thought you could lie. You didn't know that they saw you steal the cookies or whatever you did, right? 
So he's giving, this is an act of mercy. He's not trying to trap him. He's giving him an opportunity to repent before judgment. When God asks you a question, he is not asking for information. He already knows. He is asking you to consider something. Sometimes I'll do something and the Lord will say, did that honor me? I think he knows it didn't. It's an opportunity for Brad to repent. So when God asks you a question, he's saying, consider your ways. Let's think about this now, right? Humble yourself, right? Gehazi loves money more than the truth, and he says, I have been nowhere, which is fascinating because he hasn't been in Elisha's presence for the last hour or so. By the way, servants most of the time stayed in the master's presence until they were dismissed. That was normal. So you haven't been there for an hour, and you say, I went nowhere. Well, where's your body been? It hasn't been here, right? What's amazing is that Gehazi actually thought he could lie to Elisha. Don't you think this is remarkable? By the way, Back in the day, a prophet was often called a seer, S-E-E-R, a seer. A seer is someone who could see the future from God's perspective. So prophets sometimes were given the ability to see the future from God's perspective. Now Gehazi knows that God's spirit lives in Elisha. How then did he think he could deceive Elisha, who is, God has used to do mir- multiple miracles, right? Reminds us of Ananias and Sapphira, right? Acts 5, they thought they could lie to the Holy Spirit. Do we ever do that? You think? Anytime you try and justify sinful behavior, you're trying to deceive God. And number one, you lie to yourself first, right? Well, it really wasn't that bad. Mm-mm, it was really bad. It was worse, right? Don't ever try and lie to God. Elisha says, look, I saw you run after Naaman's chairman. I saw you lie to him, and I saw you take the silver and gold that you coveted. And you know something? Gehazi was successful. He got the wealth from Naaman. But he also got the health from Naaman. Bad trade. He got Naaman's fatal disease of leprosy. He instantly became a leper, and that Leprosy apparently was transmittable to his children. Now, we know that God's justice is always perfect, but to our ears, this sounds really harsh. I mean, if every time you lied, you got leprosy, most of us have been dead the first time. We never had a chance for the second lie, right? So why was God so harsh? Well, number one, Gehazi had been exposed to a great deal of light. He had seen God work miracles through his master on multiple occasions. He had been exposed to massive amounts of truth. And he chose to lie in light of that. You and I are in the same boat. We've listened to God's words for years and years and years. There's no excuse for us. Because Gazi lied to Naaman about the character of God, God judged him so harshly. See, God healed Naaman through Elisha to demonstrate to Naaman that he was the one and only true God. To demonstrate that I am the creator and the ruler of everything, and the God of Israel is not only almighty Lord of all, he is also a loving and gracious and good God who wants a relationship with all the peoples of the earth, not just the Israelite nation. I want a relationship with Jew and Gentile. Scripture says 
Jesus came to seek and to save what? Those who are lost, which is all of us. And that's the reason why Elisha would not take any compensation for his healing. Because God's grace is not for sale, it's free. Because that's the character of God. His grace reveals his favor and his unconditional love. It's free because God's a good and gracious God. And what Gehazi did when he lied about Elisha and God, he indicated that God's grace wasn't free. It could be bought. God's favor could be earned. That's not true. If you refuse God's free gift of grace, you don't get to heaven. For by grace you have been saved through faith, that not of yourselves. He who comes to God must believe that he is, right? Now we know that Gehazi had big plans for this money. Elisha actually told him what he planned to do with the money. Buy olive groves, vineyards, sheep, oxen, male and female servants. So Gehazi was not interested in serving Elisha anymore. He wanted other people to serve him. So I'm going to take 150 pounds of silver and I'm going to buy me an estate and servants, right? Lives of the rich and famous really appealed to Gehazi, right? He didn't want to take orders. He wanted to give orders. So it wasn't that a prophet couldn't be compensated. That's not the point. It was common in Israel for prophets to be compensated. However, Elisha did not want a Gentile who did not know God to get an inaccurate impression about the God of Israel. That's why he said, is it time to receive compensation when God's grace comes for free? The answer is obviously no. By the way, that's true for us. We need to be living lives that accurately reflect the grace of God. You know what part of that is? When you screw up, own it. Don't excuse it. If you screw up, guess who notices? Your unbelieving friends. They do notice. They're watching you all the time. And when you own it, they go, you're transparent. That's honest. Maybe I should check that Jesus guy out because I know I screw up too. And yet, this person screwed up, owned it, because they know that God forgave them. Maybe I should get to know that God. So big picture. God allowed Naaman to have leprosy. God allows us to have troubles and trials, problems and pain, in order to reveal his power and grace, which led to his conversion. And God allowed Naaman to have leprosy to reveal his power and grace to the nation of Israel, the King Joram, and the nation of Aram. Now, you will meet Naaman in heaven. And when you meet Naaman in heaven, I would suggest you talk with him. He probably has some things to tell you. He will, first and foremost, praise God that he got leprosy. Because if he didn't have leprosy, he would not have experienced God's healing and he would not have come to faith in Christ. And he would have died in his sins. He will thank God for the leprosy. God often uses earthly problems to bring us face to face with our eternal problem, which is what? Our need for a Savior. When we get to heaven... We will praise God for his grace, but we will also praise God for our earthly problems because those are the things that draw us to the Savior. At the end of the day, the things that shape your life and mark you and draw you close to Jesus and change your life are never the successes. They're always the pain points. 
Because that's when we're the most dependent. And we hate that. I don't like being dependent. I don't like to struggle. I don't like to be in pain. I get it. But that's when we're the most dependent on Jesus Christ. And that's when his power can work through us to accomplish his purposes, which include the salvation of people that are watching you, as well as your dependency on the Lord so he can accomplish his purposes in you. Some of us in this room would never have come to Jesus without an earthly crisis. Is that not true? Some of us in this room, if not all of us, will not draw as close to Jesus as he wants us to unless he visits us with ongoing opportunities to express our faith in the face of troubles and trials and tribulations and brokenness, etc., etc. Remember, we have a loving Father. Our Father loves us. He, no good thing He withholds from us. And the number one thing He gives us is what? Himself in the middle of all our struggles and troubles and trials. Okay, let's review and then we'll ask uh, Tom to come up for prayer and praise. Number one, no one, regardless of status, is immune from pain and suffering in this life. Your struggles are not unique. I don't mean to sound insulting, but everybody in this room has troubles, pain. They may be different, but that's one of the reasons we do life together. We bear one another's burdens. Number two, how we respond to a crisis reveals what we really believe about God. We may say X, Y, Z, and the Lord says, okay, I'm going to bless you with this problem. What do you really believe about me? Number three, when you tell God your problems, don't tell him how to solve them. He is using those problems to produce eternal benefits. So submit to that and ask the Lord to accomplish what he wants to do through the problem. I know it's very hard to do that. It's much easier to say, God, just fix the problem tonight, please, by 6 p.m. As opposed to saying, Lord, what's your purpose in this trouble I have? What's your purpose in this trial I have? What's your purpose through this? And I submit to whatever you're trying to accomplish, whatever you will accomplish. Number four, submitting to God's directions requires humility, by the way, which will save your life. You won't get into heaven with pride. You'll only get to heaven with humility. Number five, genuine conversion means worshiping the God of the Bible and no one else. That's what this Gentile general came to faith, and he said, as a result of my healing, my physical healing, which came about as my humility, I now acknowledge that the Lord of God of the Bible is the only God. And I say God of the Bible specifically because that's what we know about him. It's not God as you make him up. It's the God of the Bible. He tells us who, he's, who he is and what he's like. And lastly, God severely judges people who hinder others from following him. I think these you have enough to chew on for a week, right? Now that you know, do. Manna meets at Valley Baptist Church at 4800 Fruitvale Avenue in Bakersfield, California every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. in the choir room. We would love for you to join us. Here at Manna, we believe in doing life together. So if you're in need of prayer, submit your request to manabiblepodcast at gmail.com and our class will be happy to pray for you. Thank you for joining us today. And now that you know, do.